as they approached Jerusalem, that is Jesus and his company of followers, and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. Verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the colt, they brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them and Jesus sat on them. Well, I find that a bit hard that Jesus sat on both of them at the same time, but anyway, uh, that's for another theological debate. Verse 8, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Yeshua, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, I don't know how much that means to you. It's a lovely story. And I have read it dozens, if not hundreds of times. And I love it. However, this year, it means so much more to me. Because six weeks ago, I was in Israel. Six weeks ago, I stood at the summit of the Mount of Olives, where there is a lookout, and you look out over the Kidron Valley to the walls of the inner city of Jerusalem. You look at Temple Mount, you see the Eastern Gate, and you see the surrounds of the modern city of Jerusalem. And after we'd been at the lookout and took our photos, we then walked down a road to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, we had a time of prayer, we had a time of uh, reflection from the scriptures, and we shared a time of communion. From there, we walked down the road, down, of, down the Mount of Olives, just as Jesus did, on the very path that he would have taken, only it's got bitumen on it now. We walked through the Kidron Valley. We walked up toward the walls of Temple Mount. Now, there used to be a road that headed to the left and went in through the Eastern Gate. You can't do that now. That gate was blocked off a few hundred years ago by um, Muslims. So the road now goes to the right and you enter what's called the Lion Gate. And it's called the Lion Gate because up on the sides of the gate there's some stone carvings of lions. So they call it Lion Gate. And then 
you walk up the Via Della Rosa, the street that Jesus would have walked. As I read this passage, it means so much more because I've been there. I've walked where Jesus walked. And it means so much. And I think about those men and women who stood on the side of the road and they watched Jesus come down that steep road on a donkey and they ripped the palm leaves off the, off the palms. They laid it as, a, as an expression of honour and respect for Jesus. They laid it on the road. They took off their outer coats and they laid them on the road as well. And I think of those people. Those people, it wasn't a party for them. It wasn't just a wonderful celebration. They were making a response to God's man, God's prophet, God's Messiah. Because these people had come out of a life of pain and suffering under Roman domination. These people knew the heartaches of life. And here in Jesus was hope. They were expressing their love for God by honouring Jesus. You know, it wasn't so many days later that Jesus was on the cross crucified, cruelly treated, bearing your sin and my sin, your shame and my shame. And he was crying out from the cross. Today we're looking at the fourth and the fifth words of Jesus as he hung on the cross of Calvary for you and me. And the cries of the Lord Jesus while he hung on the cross of Calvary today remain for us an enormous challenge. In these cries we see both the reality of human suffering as well as divine triumph. The first is well understood, that of human suffering. The second for so many remains a mystery. And this, this morning I want to briefly reflect upon the fourth and the fifth of these declarations of the Lord Jesus as he endured the cross for you and me. So let's read verse, chapter 27 of Matthew, verses 45 and 46. And let's get the context in which these words were said. Matthew recorded, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an amazing reading, isn't it? 
Once again, a reading that we have heard many, many times, but do we really understand it? The first thing of importance that we should note is the timing. Matthew recorded the sixth hour. And this is not normally what we would talk about. The sixth hour is not talking about 6 a.m. The sixth hour is a reference to the sixth hour of daylight. So what would be the sixth hour of daylight? Any takers? What time does the sun rise in the morning? Around about six. So the sixth hour of daylight is midday. Around about midday. And likewise, the ninth hour is a reference to the ninth hour of daylight, which is 3 p.m. So we could read the passage now from midday until 3 in the afternoon, there was darkness over all the land. And this is the point, this is the second point that I want us to note. A reference to how many hours of darkness? Three hours of darkness. Now, let's dispel a common held myth. And it's a myth that I have even read in Christian commentaries. And they are wrong. And it's a myth that you see on Mr. Google. You know Mr. Google? <laughs> Don't believe everything you read on Google. All right? Question everything. The three hours of darkness, it cannot be a solar eclipse of the sun by the moon. The first diagram here is talking, here is the sun, here is the earth, and that's the moon. So what happens when there is a solar eclipse is the moon gets in the way of the light of the sun and has a shadow on a very small part of the earth. Has anyone been in a solar eclipse? Anyone here? I've, I've experienced it twice. Once here in Melbourne in about 1976 or something, and the other was while we were in China. An amazing experience. You know, the, the sun goes across the... Sorry, the moon goes across the face of the sun and everything goes dark and the birds all fly and start roosting in the trees. They think it's night time and they've been caught out. It's amazing. You hear all this bird chatter and everything. Well, there is a bit of a problem here because Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation of the Jewish Passover. And the Jewish Passover is a full moon festival. A full moon festival, the sun is there like before, the moon is there, uh, sorry, the earth is there like before, but the moon is in an entirely different position. At a full moon, the, the moon is on the other side of the earth. 
You cannot. It is impossible to have a solar eclipse at a full moon festival. And Passover is a full moon festival. So anyone who writes that the, the three hours of darkness occurred because of a solar eclipse by the moon, they're in cuckoo land. It's impossible. The other thing is that normally a solar eclipse, for those who have experienced it, how long does it last? 10, 15, 20 minutes. That's right. It's very short. It does not and has never lasted for three hours. So let's dispel a solar eclipse by the moon. It's an impossibility. There must be another explanation for these three hours of darkness during the middle of the day. In fact, there is no scientific or naturalist explanation for this event. It's never been recorded at any other time. Of course, there are those who hold to the theory of a huge spaceship that shrouded Jerusalem in darkness. And I guess that might hold some credibility for those who think of huge spaceships sitting over cities. Anyone here think of that? No. Good. Good. Anyone here seen a huge spaceship? No? Neither have I. Good. The most logical and acceptable explanation is that God was so offended by the weight of the sin of the world which Jesus carried that he, that is God, shut out the light of the sun from shining on the Lord Jesus. It was a divine act of God. Three hours of darkness as Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary. The question therefore must be asked, was this an act of condemnation for God to turn his face away from the presence of sin? Or was it an act of compassion in that God was hiding the sin that Jesus was carrying? And that's something for you to think about this afternoon. In Jesus cutting out the, the light of the sun for three hours, was it an act of condemnation or an act of compassion? Let's face it. Even today, isn't it a common phenomenon for most sin, for most corruption and for most evil to take place under the cover of darkness or in hiddenness? I think it is. Thursday, we had a break in here at which a whole lot of valuable tools and equipment was stolen. And guess what time it was recorded on the church's security? From 2 o'clock to 2.45 in the morning. 
in the time of darkness when you would expect everybody would be sleeping. That sin, that evil was done under the shadow of darkness. And as it is with most sin and corruption, it's done in a way and at a time when people won't see. And that tells me, obviously, that what they're doing they know is wrong. They know they're doing the wrong thing. Otherwise, why do it in hiddenness? However you would choose to respond to the question of whether Jesus hid the Son because of condemnation or compassion, the reality is that in carrying our sin burden, the Lord Jesus himself felt separated and alienated from God. And that sensation, that experience was highlighted by the fact the light of the sun was cut out. In our reading, it was at 3 p.m., after three hours of darkness, that the Lord Jesus then cried out these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we can correctly spiritualise that this saying of the Lord Jesus as he hung on the cross was simply that he was quoting Psalm 22. That would be correct. He was quoting Psalm 22, which opens with a sense of despair and closes with a declaration of faithfulness in God. However, the other side of the coin is that the Lord Jesus, in carrying our sin upon himself, felt also the full weight of the horror of sin's consequences. And let's be sure about one thing. Sin does have consequences. Corruption, whether it be small or large, it doesn't matter. There is always consequences. Always consequences. And these consequences may be felt immediately or they may be felt over a period of time. But every sin, every form of corruption has its consequence. As we read in Romans chapter 6 verse 23 and in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, the wages of sin and corruption is what? Death. It's the word of God. The wages, the consequences of sin is death. And also, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. To experience that death, that consequence for sin. Brothers and sisters, let's not trivialise the fact that the Lord Jesus experienced in his frail humanity after all the mistreatment that he had experienced, he experienced the fullness of forsakenness. God turned his face 
away from Jesus because Jesus was carrying your sin and my sin, your shame and my shame, your corruption and my corruption. Jesus experienced it all. He felt alone, he felt isolated, he felt abandoned, and he felt unloved. He felt as many others do, even today. You know, throughout his life, the Lord Jesus had never before experienced these human emotions. He had always enjoyed the abiding presence of God as his father with him. Despite the betrayal and the vilification of others, he had always had a sense of belonging to and connectedness with God. But now, as he took on our sin, the shameful part of our fallen humanity, the Lord Jesus experienced something that is totally alien from God's purposes for all of us. His cry of forsakenness on the cross put into words what so many of us can never fully express. To be sure, as the Lord Jesus hung on the cross, he fully identified with the very worst that anyone could ever experience and endure. Now, I know that pretty much most of you here today have at one time or another experienced the pain and the suffering of loss. Loss of a loved one. It may be a parent, grandparent, a sibling, a child. I know that many of you may have experienced the pain and suffering of trauma, an accident, broken arms and legs. Can you imagine what Jesus experienced? Having never experienced absolute pain and suffering, forsakenness before, can you imagine what that meant for him to take on all of our suffering, the consequences of the worst of the worst? Brothers and sisters, whenever and wherever we encounter anyone going through such a crisis in life, when they feel unloved, isolated, abandoned and forsaken. The message that we have for them should not be one of platitudes like pick yourself up or it's always darkest before the dawn or never mind there's always someone worse off. Those kind of platitudes mean absolutely nothing to someone going through the depths of despair and sorrow and pain and heartache. The message that we have for these people should be one of comfort. 
and one of hope. And sometimes when we are seeking to comfort someone, the best comfort that we can give is by saying nothing. Of just being there. Of putting a hand on the shoulder. And allowing those moments of silence to speak volumes. Sometimes that's the greatest comfort that we can give, not the platitudes. And sometimes the greatest hope that we can give people is to say, I know someone who understands everything you're going through. I can't even imagine what you're going through, but I know someone who does. And if they're interested, then you can talk to them about Jesus. You see, the Lord Jesus understands better than anyone else because he endured these times himself. He went through the worst of the worst on the cross for you and me. The message of the Lord Jesus is one of hope beyond the present pain and one of assurance that God does not abandon us when we cry out to him. And when the Lord Jesus quoted the opening statement of Psalm 22, it was to express the horror of his human suffering and to show us the way to restoration of faith and the hope of full fellowship with God. Yes, he was quoting a psalm, but it was to remind us that God will never abandon us. Even though we may go through the times of darkness, in fellowship with God, there is restoration and hope. The fifth cry of the Lord Jesus from the cross was very brief. In John chapter 19, verse 28, he simply said two words. He said, I thirst. And once again, we need to put this in its correct context. In verses 26 and 27, the Lord Jesus, as the eldest son, discharged his final family responsibility. He entrusted the care of Mary, his mother, to John, his disciple. And from this moment on, the Lord Jesus had no more earthly obligations or responsibilities. From this moment on, he simply waited for death. He simply waited for death. There wasn't going to be any miracle. There wasn't going to be any reprieve. From this moment on, his earthly obligations were finished and he simply waited for death, which was the price of the sin, the corruption and the shame that he bore for you and me. In his frail humanity, after repeated gross physical abuse, 
and the effects of being nailed to the cross. The Lord Jesus was weak from the loss of blood and the pain. And in his humanity, he was thirsty. We can only imagine how he longed for the coolness and freshness of mountain spring water instead of the hot searing pain of the nails in his flesh and the salty sweat that ran down his back into the open wounds where he had been whipped, which had laid bare the very bones of his ribs. The Lord Jesus longed for a moment of relief from his agony. And in verse 29 we read, Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. Matthew 27 and Mark 15 have a slightly different record. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. They offered it to him. They didn't put it to his lips. They offered it to him. The rest said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him. Despite the apparent difference of whether the Lord Jesus had anything to quench his thirst or not, There are two questions that must be asked. The first one, who are the they referred to in verse 29? And what is this sour wine? Because the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus was very much a Roman affair, we must assume that those who sought to give him the sour wine were the soldiers who crucified him. And as part of their duty, they were there to stop others coming too close just in case someone wanted to, in an act of mercy, end the victim's suffering, mercy killing. The soldiers were there to stop it. What is the sour wine? Well, some have argued that it was like an anaesthetic to help the victim with their pain. But this is a rather nice and naive 20th century Western view. In reality, the Romans wanted their victims to suffer as much as possible as a means of deterrent to ensure total compliance by a conquered people. It's not logical that they would flog, mock, beat, spit, ridicule, put a crown of thorns on their victim's head and then Give them a drink to relieve their suffering. No, the sour wine was basically old wine that was, well, it had gone off and wasn't any good anymore for human consumption. That is, except for condemned criminals. It would have tasted bitter, horrible. Did it quench any thirst? No. Probably not, because it would have been like drinking old, contaminated vinegar. Have any of you ever drunk old vinegar that's gone off? It's pretty yuck. The real importance of this cry of the Lord Jesus is more than merely the human need. Like the fourth cry of the Lord, this 
fifth cry also has a deeper significance. Firstly, it fulfilled the prophecy in Psalm 69, for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Secondly, it speaks to the human spiritual condition that without a right and pure relationship with God, all of us have that deeper spiritual unquenchable thirst. As the Lord Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary, bearing our sin and shame, he experienced this deepest thirst. The thirst to be filled with God's righteousness and holiness. As Jesus declared in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And as Jesus hung on the, on the cross, he thirsted for righteousness because of the weight of our sin and shame was so heavy on him. What the Lord Jesus lacked in that moment on the cross was the satisfaction of the living water of God. Remember Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well when he asked her for a drink of water and spoke with her about living water. Brothers and sisters, as the Lord Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary, he reminded us of all the deepest, most powerful thirst we can experience is not merely for good old H2O, but God's living water that can quench the greatest and the deepest needs of humanity. As we consider afresh these cries of the Lord Jesus, we see the fullness of the human suffering and agony that he experienced for you and me. Make no mistake, it was a suffering and an agony that was rightfully ours. On the cross, he bore our punishment, our guilt, our shame. And his cries remind us that there is more to reality in life than our hu mere humanity here on earth. There is more to life than the 60, 70, 80 years that we may be gifted of breathing. The cries of the Lord Jesus call us to remember who God is and what God has for those who decide to put their whole trust in him. Brothers and sisters, was the Lord Jesus ultimately forsaken? Was he ultimately abandoned? Was he ultimately left dry and barren by God? No. The resurrection is proof positive that the Lord Jesus was not abandoned or forsaken, but that he fully accomplished the task for which he came, the salvation of all who call upon his name. The resurrection is also a reminder to us that yet again the righteousness 
of God was revealed to satisfy the thirst for righteousness the Lord Jesus experienced. In the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, we have all the answers to the questions and the cries that he uttered on the cross. What he experienced was for you and me and what he accomplished, what he fulfilled, has eternal implications for our lives today. To all this, to all the pain, the suffering, the hurt, the sorrow, what can we say except thanks be to God, Jesus endured it for me. Praise his holy name. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, how many times do we need to read these scriptures before the full weight of their importance finally breaks through to us? In that moment of time, when you died on the cross for us, you made an eternal difference. And we thank you, and we praise you, and we honour you for all you have accomplished. Amen. Let us all stand. This is the last. Yeah. When I surrender the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest. I can't but lost and pour content on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should lose, save in the death of Christ my My chains are gone. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. I'm ending love. Amazing grace. From his head, his hands is filled. Sorrow and love flow mingled down.
sage là et sorrow My chains are gone, I've been set free, my God, my Savior has ransomed me, and like a flood, His mercy My own, my chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me, and like a flood, His mercy reigns. which I call Passion Week. I don't call it Easter. Easter is a word that's come out of a pagan festival, Oyster Fest. It is Passion Week. And as we go into this week, may the true message of Passion Week touch your heart in a way that it has not touched it ever before or not for a long time. May the Holy Spirit of God empower you, give you voice to share the message of Jesus with neighbours and friends and workmates and family. May you be emboldened so that as people share their life and their story, so you share yours. And may Jesus be first and foremost in all you say and do to him be all the glory honor and praise amen uh before you go can i just ask for help to stack up the last two